Greetings, and welcome to Talking Who to You, a podcast dedicated to the Big Finish audio adventures of Doctor Who. My name is JG McQuarrie, and as always, I'm here with my co-host Kev Gozer. Say hi, Kev. Hi. How are you doing today? Well, I really hope I don't start a sort of giant religious conflict that consumes the entire city I live in, but who knows how the day is going to go. Well, you live in Los Angeles. I think they've probably beaten you to it. But today we also have a guest star, and that means we have a returning guest. That means we have Anthony Strand with us. Say hi. Hi. Thank you guys so much for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Well, it's fabulous to have you back, and we hope you're going to enjoy digging into this story. And Anthony, why don't you explain the second uh, special guest we have on this recording? Sure. So my one-year-old son, Miles, is in the room. He should just be playing with toys. You you might hear him from time to time. But he, he just ate, well, and so he should be relatively quiet, I hope. Well, I, for one, strongly improve of the fact that you're indoctrinating your, your young child at such an early age to the wonderful world of Doctor Who. <laughs> He actually listened to two parts of this with me in the car on the way to daycare. So. Oh, that is very cute. Um, all right, that aside, all right, JG, tell us what we're covering today. Okay, this week we are covering the Council of Nicaea. So that means we have the Fifth Doctor, Perry, and Aramem with us. So, Kev, do you want to give us a quick summary? Sure. Council of Nicaea has the Doctor and his companions land in ancient Roman territory. Uh, the Doctor is attending the titular council where he hopes to sort of learn more about the sort of religious strife encapsulating the city at this time between two different, slightly different on the surface, but deeply entrenched uh, doctrines of Christianity that are being debated. Uh, Aramim falls in with a man called Arius, who is promoting one of the less popular sort of theological theories and who risks being exiled and possibly killed if the council doesn't see his side fairly. So she in the spirit of justice, takes on his side, starts rallying his supporters, which brings the uh, attention and ire of the Emperor Constantine, who begins to sort of bear down on them. There's a lot of intrigue and uh, debate, and not a lot of like really direct action, which is it's a very philosophical, very heady story, much more about sort of the character relationships, and I find that really fascinating. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Now, Anthony, you wanted to come on for this one, so would you like to tell us why you wanted to cover this one and how you found it this time out? Sure. Um, well, the last time that I was on, we talked about Faith Stealer, which is another story that's very much about religion, and which I, I think we all found pretty disappointing. And this one I had remembered really enjoying, kind of for the reason Kev said, that it's very character-based and a lot of good dialogue, which is one of my favorite things in Doctor Who, just kind of exploring ideas. So I wanted to see if I liked this one as much as I remembered, having not liked Faith Stealer nearly as much as I remembered. And I did. I, I think it's I think it's really terrific. Oh good. I'm glad I'm glad you enjoyed the, the return to it. Kev, how did you find it? I I mean I said fascinating in my intro, so clearly it gives you some indication. Yeah, I it's very different and I like different a lot. <laughs> I like Doctor Who stories that don't resemble other Doctor Who stories. And this very fits that case. Uh, the climax is essentially a conflict not happening, which I think when handled well is always like a really sort of bold idea for a story. I think Aramem is really well written here, and she gets a short stick sometimes, so I'm really glad Carolyn Simcox, the writer, did a good job with her. And yeah, I I just think it's also really fascinating to get like a story about sort of the Doctor being wrong and sort of having to sort of learn that he's not as knowledgeable at history as he thought he was. And he, I mean, Aramem is wrong too. And this it's it's a debate really. It's this sort of exchange of ideas and coming to understand each other. That is really fascinating to me. Yeah. I think one of the real strengths of this story is the fact that it's, it's so nice to have a pure historical, which isn't just based around in the idea that either somebody has stolen the TARDIS or, you know, there's some other kind of very mechanistic reason for, the people being trapped there. So, I mean, I guess an obvious point of comparison for something like this is the Aztecs. But this isn't just, oh, we can't get to the TARDIS anymore or whatever. There's a real sense that people are staying for character-driven reasons. And that's quite unusual for these kind of character uh, pieces, for these kind of historicals. Even when we were covering like the, the, the most recent First Doctor box sets, it still tends to be the same thing. Somebody's got the TARDIS or there's some other reason, some kind of mechanical thing that stops them from just getting in and leaving. And it's just really nice to have a story 
where that is kind of resolved by the the sort of drive of a character rather than sort of the mechanics of the plot. Well, I, you you mentioned Caroline Simcox. Um, I don't know if either of you know this. She's a vicar in the Church of England. I just learned that right now. Yeah, yeah. Up the episode. So I think that like the subject matter is very personal for her. I, I would imagine that she has re- very real thoughts on the Nicene Creed and on the and probably on the council, you know, like on church history. So I think that she is really exploring all of these points of view that we encounter. Like I think that she's putting a lot of her own thoughts into it, probably things that she agrees with and disagrees with both, and working them out in a Doctor Who script. And I think that's a really great way to to explore history. I'm always really fascinated by the intersection of religion and sci-fi. Especially because I think it happens a lot, especially when you get more like liberal pastors. Like I'm assuming that actually wrote this, Carolyn Simcox is a uh, little personal thing of both of the two uh, pastors. I suppose the term is of the uh, Presbyterian Church I attended growing up. were Doctor Who fans, and I find that. Yeah, and I just, I don't know, I find that sort of coincidence sort of very funny and sort of, like, it's interesting, I guess, how there is this sort of very subculture in sort of Christian and Christian faith of also, like, sci-fi and the fantasy and sort of the looking at how the universe expands. And I can't really speak on it much being a pretty lapsed Christian myself, but, yeah, it is sort of fascinating to me how those intersect i think one of the great things about the way that it it explores religion here is the idea that it's able to take such a sort of i mean we all we all live in sort of the the western society shall we say and and even if we're not all sort of um religiously christian we're all kind of we have that the impact of the religion and the culture that 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 we exist in whether we we want to acknowledge that or or not um and so i think it's a a really interesting choice to go back and uh take kind of these these sort of very pivotal moments in the development of something which is so fundamental to the, the the sort of society that we live in but isn't a really well-known uh, event I, I don't know about you guys but i this wasn't really something i was particularly aware of um before i'd start started listening to it I, I sort of vaguely knew the name but i wouldn't have gone any further than that so it's interesting to take a historical event like that which has had a real sort of power and influence over our society and yet one which is sort of completely open to exploration because it's just it's not well known it's not something that if you unless you are kind of maybe a you know sort of studying theology or whatever you you maybe wouldn't know about so i i just i really admire the the attempts to dig into such an unusual sort of subject matter and and doing in a way that sort of grounds it in 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 a a debate amongst philosophy rather than a you're right i'm wrong sort of uh narrative conflict which could very easily have sort of devolved into well and i think that simcox knows that the most of the audience are not going to be familiar with this like Perry is kind of the the voice for that, right? Perry's very who cares about this? This it's just some some meeting of some old church people, you know. Um, and the doctor kind of has to explain to her the importance of this event, and he's uh, he's explaining it to the audience as well. Um, and I think it's a really good use of Perry that she's very cynical about the whole thing. That it's not it's not a story where we very rarely get historicals where the companion doesn't understand the significance of the event. <laughs> and I think it's Perry's just kind of disdain for it is a very interesting way into it to make the audience um, aware of the impact, I guess. Oh, you're so right. And I think this is a really good Perry story. I mean, it's mostly an RMM story and we'll get into how great she is too, but it's a very good Perry story as well, because it really gets into, I think what makes that character work as a very distinct companion at least when Big Finish is writing her, is just sort of cynicism, or sort of vibe of not really wanting to be there, or at least not be in danger at all. And especially works well paired with Aramem. And I don't know if, I can't remember any story that really sort of made those differences so stark, but it works really well for their dynamic in the story. Oh, no, I completely agree. And I think one of the good things about this story is the fact that we do get these kind of different perspectives on the same thing. So it's really great to have a a sort of modern, sort of contemporary sort of look where religion plays a far, far less important part in Perry's life. And, um, you know, that contrasts so strongly with Eremem's, you know, uh, 
complete understanding of just how significant this can be but she's also approaching it from a different angle because obviously it's not her religion she sits outside of the philosophy that's being discussed so yeah it's just the fact that it's able to adapt all these kind of um different perspectives on the same thing means that we do genuinely have um sort of differing points of view and again it's not an artificial construct it's different points of view which kind of spring from the characters that we're used to spending time from time with rather it's it's a point of view driven by character not 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 driven by plot or convenience and that that's what really i think sort of makes the interrogation of this time period work right well and aramem i I feel like the character of arius is a very interesting one because we're introduced to him as like an, an outsider who isn't even allowed to attend the council and it's such a great character like character beat for aramem that she immediately makes it her goal to make his point of view heard. Like, which comes very much out of everything we know about Aramem, I think, that she wants to help the downtrodden. She wants to help people she views as oppressed. And she, like for her to make Arius her mission immediately is so in character and also something that, like, it's certainly something Perry would never do, so it's a good contrast between the two of them. But it also just shows her leadership, like why she was a good leader in Egypt, like in action. She she rallies people around this new cause, and I think it's great. I think what makes this such a good Aramem story, as I was saying, is the fact that she gets to be such a natural leader in the story. And we really get to see her sort of perspective and what drove her uh, to have the sense of justice. I mean, this tracks character beats back from Eye of the Scorpion, and really is like makes such a fascinating character is that she is from the past and they know how to sort of write her as being like having this perspective of her time and of her status as a ruler, but without sort of falling into the uh, trap that so easily could where she's just, Oh, I don't know how things work. She's very smart, (laughs) which helps. And yeah, it's sort of great that she, perspectives that neither of the other people traveling with her would have right well and i even like this story is set 1700 years in our past and she still gets excited about it being the future like which is like it's something you can't do with any other companion it's set a story this far back but uh that enthusiasm is exactly why it's so great like you say she's not some some primitive you, you know it, it would have been easy to take a character from ancient Egypt and make them something like what Katarina was in her very brief time on the TV show where she's just kind of like scared to be out of her home or something and then dies immediately. Um, But Aramem is so excited to find new places, to experience new things. And like here she's excited to be in her future. Like as much as she was in, um, I'm sorry, what's the, what's the three musketeers one? Uh, the Church and Crown. Right, Church and Crown. Um, like, th- this is as much of the exciting future as that was. And to Perry, they're just both, like, old old time, you know? Um, so I think I think Aramem, Aramem's probably my favorite Fifth Doctor companion overall. And this is exactly why. she's She's so excited to be traveling and learning new things. I think one of the most exciting things about this story is is that Aramem actually gets a good story. She's such a great character, and Caroline Morris does such a great amount with the role, but she actually has so little in terms of like really good stories. It, it's it's frustrating to have such a, a great companion who's so often relegated to sort of roles which are just kind of scream, run away, get captured, or how horrible things happen to her. And so to have a script like this, which really kind of engages with the character gives us her perspective and her strength is is just it's so great to see the character sort of used that way now i do have one small question about that which is that she is very easily prepared to believe that the doctor and perry are prepared to uh betray her which seems like a little bit of an overstatement for the sake of dramatic effect i mean it's sort of necessary but she jumps to that conclusion awfully quickly for people she's been traveling with for you know for a very long time but other than that this is this is just such a great use of of her character Talking about Aramem uh, having 
variable story quality. Yeah, I was sort of running uh, the numbers looking at the list of her stories right now. She is in 11 main range stories. Uh, we've covered four out of this is the seventh one and we've covered four of those and we might cover two we're definitely going to cover two more but her last story isn't all that great either and then son of the dragon is a toss-up i have some fun memories of that but yeah so that is maybe six or seven good stories out of 11 and i mean such a big finish when it's sort of hitting its stride at this point that is not a good ratio and that's very unfortunate especially because a couple of those are just all-time stinkers like necromantia so yeah (laughs) it so it is very rare to get this like very well written very loving rmm story and really let the character show off in the brief time they used her well and not to get ahead of you your program i mean i assume you're talking about the kingmaker later oh yeah we're definitely talking about the kingmaker yeah um which is another great one where she's very well used so I think there's something about her in historical settings, like historical to us, future to her, that, that just really makes her shine. And I'm not sure why that is, but that's that's her best stories, I think. Oh, for sure. And I think it is that difference in perspective that, like, if you have two companions from the modern day traveling with the Doctor, then you get two perspectives because they're roughly going to have the same take on older time periods. Maybe a little difference in education, like between Barbara and Ian, but definitely not something as vastly different as Aramem seeing this time period than Perry. And also Aramem gets to have the perspective of not knowing a life growing up with the Christian church. And so her sort of speech about how bad she sees it in the Musketeer times, and I can't remember if there was a second example she named, but I mean, yeah, that is something no other commander really have a take on because they don't have the perspective of lacking it like she does. So that, such a good way to use the character. Well, I also really appreciate the fact that they let her spend time with Arius in, in, in the same sort of way that they let the Doctor spend time with Constantine. And it's it's typical of the Doctor to be able to spend time with kind of like the people at the top of the tree, but it's not all that common that we then get to see um, either the Doctor or companions sort of interacting with somebody who's, you know, maybe a bit sort of further down the pecking order, as it were. And one of the great things about the way that she introduces, uh, sorry, interacts with Arius is that, I mean, obviously he is a real historical character. He really did have, you know these um, sort of contradictory sort of doctrinal views and she's allowed to spend time with them and they're allowed to have that time spent in sort of philosophical discussion. She obviously comes from a, you know, a religion which doesn't practice uh, monotheism. They have a a lot of time um, where they're basically just sort of back and forthing about his belief systems, even although she doesn't agree with them. But again, it's so great that they don't allow that to fall into some kind of like cliche romance story. It would so easily be, you know, the way that one of the reasons uh, Aramem decides to follow Arius is that that, that she she develops romantic feelings for or whatever, but they avoid all these cliches. Caroline Simcock avoids all these kind of obvious sort of traps and and sort of ways of having these characters so it's perfectly consistent for Aramem to be able to say something like you know I completely disagree with you but I fundamentally respect your right to be able to say these things and it not come out sounding like a cliche and that's such a that's such a great skill for a Doctor Who writer to have right well and like like you say they really take the time to explore all the various points of view like I think it's episode two which is the longest episode but it's also very tightly focused on all of the discussion is about whether or not Arius will be able to influence the council. So we see him meeting with uh, some of his followers. We see other people talking about him, Constantine and the doctor uh, discuss him. Constantine's wife, whose name is I'm blanking on right now. Uh, Fausta. Fausta talks to Perry about like this whole Arius affair. And it's just, it's, so many Doctor Who stories would be concerned with, we need to have an action sequence here. We need to have an alien doing something. And the the joy of a pure historical is that it can really be about the time and about the people who live in that time. And I think it's so great. I definitely love that too. And what I think this does differently, even from other pure historicals, is this sort of very nuanced take on Emperor Constantine. Uh, I feel like usually even these pure historicals are very much divided into good guys and bad guys, and then maybe some greater in between. But I don't know if you very often get a character who is so firmly in the gray area with 
where the definitive conclusion is there is no good take on this person as Emperor Constantine. Well, no, just specifically at the end when we find out that he poisoned his wife Mm -hmm. is such a startling thing that the doctor's like, well, unfortunately, he poisoned his wife, but he did a lot of good too. And that is absolutely the position that the doctor takes at the end, (laughs) you know, (laughs) which is startling that, I mean, that seems like a pretty big negative, but then they also talk about how, you know, he really did do, he was like a pretty fair ruler and things. I can't remember exactly what they say at the end, but it's like, it's very much like, yes, murdered his wife. Yes. Good at leading his people. (laughs) And like you say, it's such a non-conclusion. It's such a both sides. There are there are shades of gray to him. I guess I don't want to say both sides, but yeah, it's interesting. Like it's almost out of character, the doctor to sort of brush over how he poisoned his wife or killed her. I think it may not have been directly poisoned, but yeah, it's very sort of uh, fascinating to see them go into it like that. And what makes it works so well is we start the story with the doctor and Aramem on two very different sides where the doctor gets to meet Constantine as usual hobnobbing way we even get a lampshade from Perry how that usually works out and sees his perspective Aramem is told he's a tyrant and all the terrible things to rise to power and that is all she can think about and in the end they both at different points admit that they were wrong about the emperor and he's more nuanced than either of them realized and it's like I said, I don't have care to the doctors or brush over the death like that, but I mean, that's history. That history is full of like, like every great man in history did at least one thing that was terrible. Every, well, not, and then there are some people who are purely terrible. I don't want to say they're, they've also done great things, but like then there are people who have done more terrible things, but still have good qualities about them. And there is no perfect model person in history no perfect leader and so that is sort of what the story really digs into and that's what makes it so starkly different from not just from doctor who but also there's an interesting work of fiction is its willingness to sort of play in that very gray area of history and never have constantine come across as a hero or a villain well i think part of that is also due to the quality of the performance of um david bamber as, as constantine he's really good in this role and he's able to play that kind of um very sort of um condescending sort of supercilious nature of the emperor because yeah he's an emperor he can do whatever he likes um and he is kind of you know he can be a cruel tyrant one moment and he can be sort of compassionately understanding in another um and that's uh, you know one of those things where this could so easily be like a standard Doctor Who moustache twirler. Um, and it's not. There's, there's, I think there's real sort of nuance to his performance. I think we're given enough hints that he can be a real monster um, earlier on in, in sort of when we first encounter him. And then gradually as we spend time with him, we get to understand, if not exactly to sympathize with him, then we at least start to understand his perspective in terms of what he's trying to do um, to hold the empire together and sort of the role that he has. Um, the relationship with Fausta, I find to be slightly underwritten. I mean, you can't tick every single box, I suppose, in a story like this. Um, but the, clearly there are suggestions, I think, that they're, a, a, if not a marriage of convenience, at least a, a marriage where there's there's no scales to fall from the eyes. They understand each other perfectly. And, and it seems to be as much a sort of, I guess, a political liaison as much as it is anything else. But um, yeah, David Bamber is just simply terrific in this role. And yeah, I really think Foster's character is very interesting. I am not sure if she really has a lot of story impact, but it is great to sort of, A, get like another woman's perspective on the story like from the time period, not just a companion of the Doctor. I think an easy trap of these stories, a big finish of Doctor stories in general, is to outside the companion either have no or very few female characters and then a lot of them maybe aren't so deep. But uh, Faust is a very fascinating person and I love how she has a sort of intrigue going on. Mostly the motivation to get is just out of like professional curiosity. Like, and the sort of same good intentions of her husband of trying to make this empire run well. And I really love the scene between her and Perry where she's just trying to apply wine to get more information out of her. 
but then this sort of real sort of connection forms and they get to just sort of talking to each other as friends. And that's a really solid scene. Yeah, that's really great. That's one of the, well, that's one of the standout scenes, I think. And um, every scene that she shares with her husband too, just it, like you say, a lot of times female characters can be afterthought, especially when it's like the leader and his, and his wife, they seem like they are equally important to the story here even though the other characters talk about him a lot more than they do about her. Like she has so much agency on her own that it, it seems like he, seems like they have been doing this verbal sparring for years and it is a joy to listen to oh yeah it definitely is and i think um i mean Fausta, for all that i say that she's she's not quite as as well written as uh constantine she's also isn't the the sort of principal focus of the story but claire carroll does very well with the role and she's very believable i just i just wanted to pick up on something that you guys mentioned earlier i think you said that she was poisoned am i right in saying that actually um constantine had her steamed to death in her own bathroom which is which is a truly horrific way to kill someone um so, you know, for all that we have this kind of playful back and forth relationship and the understanding between them, when, when he does finally sort of get rid of her, obviously out with the, the, the scope of this story, it's a really appalling way that he does it. And so, yeah, again, it's sort of it, she, her character kind of helps to reinforce, you know, what we know about the, the, the nature of Constantine and the way that he has this, um, you know, very different at sides of him but the character of, of of fausta isn't used um how can i say this it's not used in a way to just allow us to explore his character she also is allowed to be a character in her own right so there's enough strength and there's enough um definition to her character and indeed to, to claire carroll's performance to, to really allow us to to get on board with that character and and sort of feel something for her so when we do eventually get her fate revealed to us that we you know we've spent enough time with her to go wow that's terrible yeah no i i agree i don't know that i have anything to add but i agree what i think is this then ties into the sort of overall scope of the story. I mean, is this idea that how can someone do terrible things but still be sort of a good ruler? Or do, does doing terrible things make you a bad ruler no matter how well you are at keeping the peace? Like, what is the cost of keeping the peace? And sort of all of that sort of tied in together. And these are complicated questions that don't necessarily get a clean-cut answer. Well, that factors into that great scene. I think it's in episode three when... Aramem gets the chance to confront Constantine and she just kind of rips into him. Mm -hmm. And you like, she, like she says, she has been a leader. And I think that's exactly why that scene works so well is because she feels like the doctor says he's a good leader, but he makes choices that are unthinkable to me that I would never make with my people. Therefore he cannot be a good leader. And like what I love about that scene is she just she doesn't hold back. She just rips into him. And he he obviously, you know, he's the emperor of the Roman Empire. He gives it back just as well. And they both are so clear in their convictions. Um, and he like like you say, the thing about be a good leader and still do bad things. He th believes 100 percent that he has made choices that benefit his people. And she believes that he has made choices that doom his people. And ah, they're, David Bamber and, and Caroline Morris are both so great, but the writing is so good too. It's just, there's no winner. There's no clear good guy. Ah, I love it. Yeah. I think, well, obviously isn't a clear a good or bad guy. There definitely is, I think, one clear good guy. And we're a clear bad guy, which we'll probably talk about later. But the clear good guy is Arius, for sure. He... If there's one sort of criticism with how the story handles Shades of the Grey, he's almost a little too squeaky clean. Because he's, like, even with sort of his uh, side might get unruly and might uh, be causing some of this conflict, uh, he himself is such a very nice person, constantly saying, I don't want violence, I just want people to be nice, I just want to preach my beliefs. And there's no real harder edge to the character. Which I think that's where the sort of some of the few problems have the story sort of 
sneak in is with him and Athanasius, who is just purely a mustache-twirling jerk. Uh, there's not as much nuance they get as some of the other historical characters. Oh, no, I think that's a legitimate criticism of Arius, and particularly sort of given his historical position as somebody who was sort of arguing against doctrine, you would think that he would be a little sort of harder-edged. you think he'd be a little less naive, if nothing else. Um, but there is a slight sense of naivety about the character, I think. And and that is a bit of a shame. I don't, I don't know that um, they could have done a lot more to kind of shore up that side of the character because a lot of the conversations that he has with Eremem when they're discussing kind of their the, the sort of the positions of their philosophy and their religious beliefs, I mean, what he stands for does come across there. But yeah, he is a little bit naive. He is a little bit squeaky clean. But then that is to a slight extent also true of Eremem as well. Like I said earlier, her, her sudden belief that she's been betrayed by Perry or, or whatever when, you know, I mean, she comes from this kind of palace intrigue. The idea that her friend has been followed by a couple of guards is not beyond the realms of possibility. And yet she seems very happy to just accept, oh, no, 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 my friend's betrayed me. Um, so on that, on both of those sides of the, 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 the conversation, her and Arius, there is a slight naivete, but Arius is, you know, he comes across as a likable character. Stephen Kyman does does very well with the role, um, and there's just enough conviction there to make us really believe, uh, you know, the importance of, of what it is he thinks he's trying to do. Yeah, well, I, I think we're meant to believe that Perry is just so taken with Arius's mission, with Arius's point of view, that... Well, I, and frustrated that the doctor thinks Constantine is so great that she has come to view herself as one of Aries's followers and the doctor is Mr. Constantine fan. So I think that that's why we're supposed to think that she believes they betrayed her so easily is that it's like she's gotten wrapped up in, in her new mission and she has, she's feeling like the doctor is too far away from that position. I don't know. I, I, I don't quite buy it. I'm just trying to figure out what the story expects us to think. And I think that that's what it is. And it is a little that bit of a, sense. Oh, it does for sure. It is a little bit of a plot cheat for sure. And also is probably this part of sort of that sits least well with me, but I will say, I find the doctor's sort of role in this uh, works really well because he also isn't picking sides. Like he's favorable to Constantine at the beginning because just because he has the nice chat with him, but at the same time, I mean, he does, like, freely sort of... His doctor's basic priority is making sure he and his companions get out of there alive. <laughs> he makes that very clear. And he's willing to sort of sell Arius out in a couple scenes. Like, oh, Aramem has gone this way, or I'll have to look with her and talk her down. Just because he's concerned about Aramem, not because he's against Arius. I think uh, Simcox positions him in that way very well. Because it means the doctor like isn't really picking sides. He's just is with Constantine out of convenience for most of the story. And that's a good shade, I think, to sort of Davison. Sort of having to play the sort of damage control rather than uh activist. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I think it's a, one of the reasons that this story is so well suited to him specifically is that it's difficult for me to imagine, you know, Sylvester McCoy or Colin Baker especially being this dispassionate and kind of hanging back to this degree. Um, it's, it's one of the things that the fifth doctor is very good at is just kind of like, you know, in, inhabiting the margins of a story and just kind of watching and stepping in when he needs to. And this is such a great example of that. Oh, it, it absolutely is. And I think, yeah, Davison is given, even by his own standards, he's given a relatively gentle, relatively soft performance here. He's got a couple of moments where he gets to kind of bring the doctor's sort of righteousness and, and, and sort of rage to the surface. But for, for a lot of it, it's, it's a gentle and persuasive doctor. And that does make really good use of, of this doctor and, and of Peter Davison's acting skills. And I mean, it is interesting, like you say, you couldn't imagine the sixth doctor in this story or whatever. I completely agree, especially at the end of episode one, where they're back at the TARDIS and then, um, you know, Aramem says, I'm not coming with you. There is no way the Sixth Doctor would, would have put up with that. If this was a Sixth Doctor story, it would be over by the end of episode one. She would have been pushed through the doors. So that would have been the end of the story and we'd be on to the next one. But of course, this is a much more gentle, much more compassionate and a much more sort of tolerant Doctor. So he's prepared to give Aramem the space to be able to do that, but also equally sort of not simply abandon his friend. And 
again, that's that's pretty deft characterization of the Fifth Doctor, and it does stand in contrast to to um, yeah, particularly his other sort of main range Doctors. Um, they they just wouldn't behave like that, and and that's really well written towards. I I definitely want to give uh, Caroline Simcox some real praise for for doing that. Yeah, if this was a McCoy or McGann story, uh, they'd be giving the speech at the end, yes. not Emperor Constantine. <laughs> I think that's such an effective move of Davison, and I think that's why it's sort of easy to overlook him, but it is very effective to have him sort of stand back and have these lines about having faith in both sides sort of coming together and finding a nonviolent uh, end to this sort of conflict. And I think that it gives the story more tension. The Doctor's not going to swoop in and save anything. It's going to be these people to save their own mess. And will they do it? Can uh, Constantine calm down? Can uh, Arius and Aramim control the mob they've created? I mean, we don't know until we get there. And that is very uh, its thrilling. It's very tense. One of the things about that big confrontation at the far end of the story in episode four is that when we have the two sides which are facing off against each other, because this is a very unknown period of time, if you know what happens to Arius, obviously um, there isn't going to be any um, sort of tension in this, but because it's a very sort of unusual setting and because it's a very um, distant time, we don't know what's going to happen. So it's able to kind of have its cake and eat it. It's able to generate real tension about whether this is going to sort of descend into sort of open warfare in the streets or whether there's going to be a peaceful resolution, whilst at the same time sort of setting it in a period where that fact is already sort of predetermined. And that's a really nice piece of writing as well. That's really sort of skillful. And, and the way that the Doctor sort of implores faith from Constantine at the same time that, you know, Perry and Aramem are basically doing doing the same uh, with the army um, that's, that's come to sort of oppose Constantine is just is great. That's just such a such a skillful piece of writing. And, and yeah, it just allows that tension to be there whilst sort of maintaining, you know, the sort of the truth of the characterizations we've had throughout um, all four episodes. I'm just in uh, so much praise for that finale. Yeah, it really is like an unconventional ending and all the stronger for it. And I, I really do want to see like more Doctor Who? <laughs> I mean, I guess ending with a speech is very Doctor Who, but ending with a speech from someone other than the Doctor, and that's what makes this such a good story is that it really is about these very three-dimensional characters outside of the Doctor, and he gets to take a sort of a step back here and really let Aramem and Constantine sort of run the show in terms of getting these sort of character development moments. Yeah, well, I, uh, I I don't know if I've said this on the show today, but I know I've, I'm, I'm on record as thinking that Perry and Aramem are my favorite Fifth Doctor companion duo. Like, I like I like Perry better with the Fifth Doctor and Aramem than I did with, with Colin Baker on TV, which isn't much of a stretch. But, yeah. but like, I, I'd also take them over any of his companion teams from, from the show. There's just something about the way that they all play off of each other that makes all three characters shine. Like, I think Aramem's enthusiasm is such a great counterpoint to Perry's cynicism, but also both of them being such kind of big, like, enthusiastic, outgoing characters in, in different ways allows Davison's natural kind of, you know, I don't want to say shyness. He's not shy. He's the doctor. But his how low-key he is. That shines more because the, he has these two big personalities with him who are just so excited to be there, too. Like, I, I don't know. It's just such a, a fun dynamic. They're all three so different, and it allows Peter Davison to play his kind of doctor in a way that's more fun than when he's, you know, nagging at Tegan or whatever, I think. Well, I for, I for one find it hard to believe that anybody could appreciate a companion more for Adric, but that's a conversation for another day. One, <laughs> one, one of the things, I want to sort of slightly push back against one of the things that you said there, though, because I think um, in terms of the way that Perry is used in this story, I think it's great. I'm not in any way going to contradict that. But I'm, I'm slightly loath to describe it as cynical. I don't think she comes across as cynical here. Um, I think she just comes across as someone who just doesn't, 
she has no investment in religion. We get a little bit of a, a you know, she explains what her own religious past is, but that it's not particularly important to her. Um, and I don't think that she's being cynical in that. I think it's just, you know, I mean, the, the period that she comes from in 1980s America, alle allegedly, is meant to be, you know, a, a period where religion in, in sort of that kind of um, mainstream society is, is, is just, it's a much less important thing. It's, it's not a significant factor in her life. So when she's listening to people debating it, it's not like she's, she's taking up a sort of Richard Dawkins position of complete cynicism or dismissal or, or of atheism. It's just, it's just not that big. It's just not that important to her. Yeah, that's true. I can't, I, I can't argue with that. I guess it's just more at the beginning of the story when she's very like, why is this even yeah. a thing? <laughs> like, I, I don't know. I, I guess maybe cynicism is not the right word. Just, Lack of interest is probably yes, is probably I think, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I'll uh, I'll see I'll see that point. I guess the only major character we haven't talked about yet is Athanasius, and I don't know. Like I said, he's a very much sexual villain. I don't know. If, I don't have many thoughts about him, but if you guys do, he he feels very stuck, like behind the scenes underling villain to me. There's nothing. There's nothing to make him stand out from many other type similar characters that we've seen. Over the years, in Doctor Who, and he reminded others. me a lot of a sort of a sort of dime store uh, Hieronymus from uh, Mask of Mandragora. It's the same kind of like he's yeah. It's the same kind of sort of mustache twirly villain. It's a historical character. He's just basically there to get in the way of things, which is exactly what he does. But yeah, there's there's not really a lot of shading going on there. I, I it, it's a perfectly fine performance, but there's not there's not an awful lot that uh, Martin Parsons has to work with. It's 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 fine, but yeah, it's it's a pretty stock role. Uh, I think one role that could have been very slight, but is very nice, is that Clement, Blue Marco Garland. Uh, he has sort of those shades of gray that Arya sort of doesn't, where he is willing to sort of kill some guards because they're going to arrest them and he almost instigates the conflict at the end because he gets a little riled up and at the same time though he's a very kind and generous person he's trying to look out for Aramem all of those times and he just really fiercely believes and wants to believe in I think I'd almost prefer the version of the story where Clem and Arius are the same person and Arius has some of those more combative qualities and that might not be historically accurate, which may be why it was sort of divided up like that. But it, I think that's sort of what's lacking in Arius is sort of Clement's more nuanced, uh, sort of more radicalness in his nature. It's a very nice character, and um, it, it's another one which is a lot of the quality of the performance. I think um, helps towards the quality of the writing. Not that it's necessarily sort of badly written because it's absolutely not but um, Michael Garland does really really well with the role I think this is the only thing he's ever done for Big Finish and that seems like a real shame because he's he's got a nice sort of naturalistic charm to the way that he acts and 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 I think that sort of helps to imbue Clement with so much of the kind of um warmth and and sort of approachability let's say uh, that that makes the character work in this play so uh, it's a shame that he's never really been back but yeah no it's a lovely little character and and one which would be very easy to sort of skip over so i'm i'm glad that we're not doing that you mentioned his voice jg i really think he has this very striking voice it just he has a, he has a very interesting yeah, quality yeah, yeah. to his voice that really really helps him seem like a just a guy i mean he's a shop owner he's not you know, he's not a nobleman. He's not going to the council. He's just a, a regular guy who believes very much in, in Arius's ideas. We talked about this story being so much about different perspectives. And his is such a valuable one. And I'm glad that they included it. Well, this kind of leads me back to one of um, <laughs> one of my things that I always sort of try and mention when I can. Um, but um, sort of class in Doctor Who. And um, one of the nice things about having a character like Clement in here is that it's not just kind of like noble people having terribly abstract arguments about sort of things which will just affect other people. We actually bother to spend time with a character that this is actually going to affect. As you say, he's just a normal 
stallholder. He's not somebody special. He's not even like a guard or, you know, somebody who's kind of in the imperial orbit or, or whatever. He's just some guy that thinks somebody's doing the right thing, so he's going to follow him. And it's so important to have these kind of perspectives. I, to be honest, I would have liked to have seen Clement's role expanded. I think we could have done um, with a little bit more kind of perspective on, you know, sort of from the ground up, as it were, so that we get to spend time with the people that these decisions are are going to impact. Arius is obviously somebody who has a great sort of philosophical reason for sort of supporting his own his own position and for going against church doctrine. But somebody somebody like Clement doesn't necessarily automatically fulfill that role. And I just think it's 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 such an important thing to have that kind of character in there so that we get a sense of perspective um, and we get a sense of, of um, dimension as to, to what these kind of abstract philosophical and religious debates, uh, you know, actually revolve around. Yeah, I would have liked to have seen his role expanded too. I mean, I, I, although I will say, I think one of the things, one of the reasons this play works so well is that it is relatively tight. I mean, it's it's like 100 minutes long. So maybe if you had expanded a role like like Clement, you know, maybe that's when it would start to drag or something. So I am I, I am a little bit loath because I, I just think that the the pacing works so well here. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that that's why I'm a little loath to to wish for for more of it. I don't know. Some I, I feel like so many two hour big finish stories drag, and this one is just like the perfect length. No, that's fair. But I would I would rather spend more time with sort of Clement and and that kind of perspective than sort of going through a sort of more more cliche role like sort of uh, Athanasius. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, so I, I, agree, no, I agree with you. I think the pacing is really good here and, and this is a great length and it uses its, its time absolutely perfectly. I would, I just rather more, you know, yeah, have, have those two characters sort of swapped around so we get to spend more time with Clement. Yeah. I think it is another sort of small weakness of the story that so much about it is the doctor being sort of the eyes and ears of the people for Constantine, that Arius's view is what the people view as opposed to the aristocrats, but Clement is a really only window into that and i mean we don't even get a general sense it almost to bring a very timely sort of reference into this maybe less timely this comes out a couple weeks from now uh game of thrones is a show almost entirely about uh the aristocrats in this sort of society and i've seen a lot of like sort of chat on twitter recently is like well we've never know what the people of this land actually think about their rulers and i mean that's so true for this story as well like we outside of clement's one perspective we don't actually know what the average citizen of rome is shown it's just told that uh these people are want justice for Arius. and you know it's the little more perspective would have been nice instead of just spending time with the same sort of royal court intrigue that a lot of historical sort of lean on no no absolutely that's 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 completely fair but at least we have you know something here it, it, there's there's something to sort of explore and and yeah it's it's just really important that it's that at least it is there otherwise yeah the the, the play would be very much weaker for not having a, a character like clement in it and i think with that that's probably about as much as i have to say as far as uh, council of nicaea is sort of concerned i just i just this is such a, a nice refreshing story it's it's such a great use of rmm and and i'm just so happy that we've um so basically all agreed with each other that it's a good story um but it's just it's i i i really enjoy stories like this which just sort of subvert expectations which deal with sort of history in a way that we don't you know often or always get in doctor who um and which is prepared to take the characters involved in it sort of um seriously i think yeah i mean that's that's my thought on it too it's such a like th- it also really makes me wish i've been wishing that the the tv show would do a pure historical 100%. the entire like the entire time it's been on the air, but I especially wish that now um, with, with Jodie Whittaker as the doctor mm-hmm. who I feel is very Davison esque. I, I, I think she's like, like I think of all the classic doctors, that's the one she's closest to, to doing. Um, and I think she would be really good in a story like this, where she's just kind of, you know, letting the, the conflict up. I think something like demons of the Punjab would have been much better if it was a pure oh, historical. I would say all three of her historical stories in her first season were uh, the alien part was the worst part. And like Witchfinders and Rosa as well, like would have been so much better without 
very artificial sci-fi conflict sort of wedged into them. Right. So I, I, I guess my final thought on Council of Nicaea is that's my hope for season 12, that they do appear in historical. <laughs> yeah. My final thoughts, uh, like I said, I love the sort of shades of gray we're playing with here. I love nothing is really uh, simply boiled down in this story and that it's a very, it plays very sort of loose with what Doctor Who can be. There's no pressure, no urgency to sort of artificially create conflict. It's just very much a character study. And that's when Doctor Who is strongest, is when it's a study of these characters, both uh, regular cast members and uh, these guest stars, just sort of getting into how they interact, how they react to these situations, both historical and fantastical. I think uh, Carolyn Simcox in Council of Nicaea understands that very well. And so, yeah, very good story. Fantastic. I can only agree. But I think there we can probably leave it for the Council of Nicaea. Kev, would you care to tell people how they can get in touch with us? Sure. You can email us at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com. I know we do have a few letters sent to us over the break. Thank you so much. Uh, for personal reasons, not enough time to sort of get into them this recording, but definitely keep an ear out for those in future ones. Uh, yeah. Again, email us at talkingwhotoyou at gmail.com. We love talking to you. Anything related to this episode, anything Doctor Who related at all, or even something off topic will be sort of fun to discuss. You can also find us on Twitter, at Talking Who to You. You can find me on Twitter, at Kev Kozer, that is K-E-V-K-O-E-S-E-R, and more of JG's writings at www.jgmcquarrie.scott, that is J-G-M-C-Q-U-A-R-R-I-E.scott. Uh, Anthony, would you like to plug anything? Sure. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at Zeppo Marxist. And uh, I also host a podcast about the great Muppet Caper called Moving Right Along. We are, uh, when when this airs, I think we'll be about 15 minutes into uh, Great Muppet Caper, two, two minutes at a time. So if you like Muppets, check it out. Awesome. All right. So yeah, that about wraps it up. I think for all of the... Oh, yeah. Like, rate, review, and subscribe, of course, using the podcatcher of your choice. The feedback helps other people find the podcast and gives us, uh, you know, nice feelings when you say nice things about us. Yes, we always like to have nice things said about us. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Well, next week, we are going to do something slightly different, something we haven't quite covered on the podcast before. We are going to take a step out of the world of Doctor Who, and we're going to take a step into the world of Torchwood. We are going to cover the first two stories in the Lives of Captain Jack box set. That means we're going to be doing The Year After I Died by Guy Adams and Wednesdays for Beginners by James Goss. And as always, we hope you're going to join us for it. But until then, keep talking.